This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Bonnie Jo Campbell, author of the novels Once Upon a River and Q Road, the short story collections American Salvage, Women and Other Animals, and Mothers Tell Your Daughters. She also writes poetry and plays. We began by talking about her recent collection, Mothers Tell Your Daughters. Tropes that emerge in these stories include women with cancer, women who are raped and abused, women who can't live up to their potentials, and family relationships. I asked Bonnie Jo Campbell to talk about her thematic interests. For me, what the most important thread, after this being a collection about relationships among women, was that In many of the stories, there is a sexual violation of some kind. I guess because a lot of my stories come from a place of worry or anxiety, um, that this this is, I I have a lot of nieces, (laughs) and I have no daughters, but I have a lot of nieces, and I think a lot about the trouble these days, about the trouble that women face, young women and, and older women. I've always been interested in older farm-type women. But I'm, I'm worried, I guess, about the different, the way that life changes after some kind of sexual violation. I'm, I'm not as interested in women as victims, because I think that it's just uninteresting. It's, it's not a good, it's not what fiction does best. Um, essays are great at exposing how pe- people are victims. But for fiction, we want to see how people put put lives together and how how cause and effect works. And so I guess I'm interested in um, situations where women are violated or molested in some way and how how their life goes on after that. I guess, you know, in the in the first long story, The Playhouse, I guess I was I was interested in, in the the incidents in the news where young women would pass out and then find out the next day they'd been molested. And I guess now we have Bill Cosby also um, involved in something like this. And so I was just, to me, it seemed even even worse than being raped would be like being raped and not knowing it. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in these, the, the way that life looks after some of these things occurred. And um, for different for different women, they have to have different responses. A lot of the women in my stories are poor, very poor, and a lot of them have made bad choices, so they're in crummy situations. And I guess um, it just makes their situation more desperate. Um, and for my money, that's good for fiction. Uh, desperation heat, heats up a story and makes it more urgent. In the story that you mentioned, Playhouse, it's about a woman named Janie and her brother Steve, and she goes to visit Steve, and he's with his daughter Pinky, and he's basically a single dad, and they're, Pinky's playing in her playhouse. So it's very, it's kind of a very girly scene, and there was some kind of rift between these two siblings. They used to talk every day, but like a week or so had gone by and they hadn't talked, so Janie goes to visit and slowly, as they're playing with the daughter, Pinky, it comes out that she was at a party at Steve's, and she was raped probably by several men, 
And he saw it and she didn't remember until they start having this discussion and she still doesn't remember. Can you talk about the implications of writing a character that doesn't know what happened, how you reveal that, and just taking on this subject? There's the kind of violation that a person is very aware of, that they can feel that violation. But the violation against this girl is something more abstract. Her body knows something happened. Her body is reacting to being abused, but she doesn't understand it. She, she keeps throwing up, and she doesn't want anybody, she doesn't want her boyfriend to touch her. And I, I guess it was, that was a, a special challenge um, to do that, to figure out what would bring to her enough information. And part of it is seeing the innocent girl, um, seeing the little girl playing, is kind of makes her feel very much con- contrasted. She's not innocent, and she's, she's not playing anymore. Um, I, I uh, am not sure how, how, you know, she's a person who doesn't have any education. She doesn't necessarily have access to maybe some of the counselors who could help her. So she's, she's kind of on her own to puzzle, puzzle out what's happened to her. And her, her brother may not be much help. What do you think his role is, or is there something you want the reader to walk away with? I mean, he saw this happen. There are some points where you think he saw it head on, and sometimes where you see it out of the corner of the eye. It wasn't complete. I mean, it's not like he was standing there cheering the men on, but he was sort of letting this happen. Yeah, yeah, and it was really interesting to me to try to puzzle out what what his role was, um, and the fact that he hadn't spoken to her for a while made me think. He was taking it was it was actually three weeks that they didn't speak, and it made me realize that he was solidif- sort of solidifying his own way of understanding what had happened. I mean, he knows his sister was violated, but he's got other conflicting feelings that I think in society people have that the girl, you know, she was maybe asking for it. On, on the one hand, she was asking for it because she was drunk and not taking care of herself. But on the other hand, he also didn't think it was a big deal. I mean, he saw she was having sex. He likes to have sex. He loved the idea that he'd get drunk and some cute girl would jump on him. That that seemed to be, you know, almost almost presented like a male fantasy for him. And so he can't quite relate to why it couldn't be that way to her. And, and maybe to make himself feel better, he just wants it to be okay for her. You know, he wants to dismiss this violation because he then they could all be okay again. And the reason it should be scary to the reader is because he's raising a little girl and he's not sensitive to what could happen to her. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Bonnie Jo Campbell, author of the short story collection, Mothers Tell Your Daughters. 
One of your stories that really struck me, it was about Y2K. It was called Bloodwork 1999. And the main character, Marika, is a phlebotomist. And she takes blood at the hospital, but she has this very tender heart. She's kind of weak in the face of other people's suffering. She has piles of letters that she gets from, like, feed the children and care and save the animals. And she basically gives as much money as she can away and it's on the eve of Y2K when the story takes place and everyone, a lot of people around her are convinced that the world is going to end. And she has a patient that comes in that's burned all over his body. He wants her to touch him sexually and is asking her in the hospital to touch him. It was an interesting story to me because so many people on Y2K were interested in survival in terms of food and water. And for her, I felt like survival was a sensual thing in the end. Can you just talk about constructing this story and what it meant to you? I love the idea that there was a person who really was the perfect recipient of all the calls for help in the universe. You know, all those, you know, we have to, we have to learn to ignore, we have to learn to ignore all those, those, we couldn't, we couldn't endure if we had to take all those things to heart, all those pleas for money. So I, I guess I, I wanted to play around with the idea that there, that there was somebody who was truly affected every time she saw one of those. And, but for her, she was in so much, so interested in helping others that she was kind of in denial about herself and about her own essential needs. That's exactly right. Um, and so being faced with this boy, who calls out to her, and we're not sure he really needs her, but he wants her, and for her to be able to achieve some kind of sort of sexual satisfaction by, by helping him um, seemed like a, an interesting notion to play with. She does break the rules. Do you think in a way in, in Y2K, this sort of sensual answer she got, this touching another human being, both sexually but just for the state of touch, because she was sort of alighted by a man who was preaching for the doom and the end of the world who touched her, that set her off to break the rules, is something that's more provable. In the end, what we have is our body, in the same way that you were talking about in Playhouse, she knew something in her body. In some ways, do our bodies know more than our minds? Can they I, take us I further? I believe that, absolutely, that our, our bodies are wiser wiser than our minds or, or our spirits. <laughs> I, I stand up for the body. Um, but I, I think, yeah, that, that, and I do want that to seem in that story almost like a magical transference, that she, she's, she is a person who, she does touch people, but it's always in this medical, this medical way. And she's very tender with people and very gentle with people. But having that man, having that strange man you know, the the lightning man touch her in this other way is sort of a sensual awakening. Um, maybe because it's not rational and she doesn't, you know, it's not clear what the purpose is. But when he reaches inside, he reaches right inside her jacket and touches her bare shoulder. And, and she's basically electrified. And so I did see that as kind of a, you know, a, a, a some kind of awakening. And so she has to, but because she's such a good person, she has to pass it on. And, and maybe we all do, you know, maybe that's, that's what that touch is all about when we, when we 
learn something or are or are are made made to be more because of somebody touching us, then that's our natural response is to go out and pass it around. Well, you also have a lot of touch in here, as you were saying, about sexual violation and abuse that is not positive touch. That I mean, it still tells you your place in the world, but it's not as positive. And in one of your stories, Multitude of Sins, there was a husband and wife. He is dying, and she is his caregiver. And basically, throughout their marriage, he was abusive to her physically and emotionally, abusive to their son, kicked their son out of the house, and now he is incapacitated in hospice and she finds a sort of delight in abusing him back because he's still calling her names he's still reaching out and pinching her when he can and she is trying to find her own dominion and trying to find her own peace and at the end he's calling out to God and he's asking for God's forgiveness but he never asks for hers and so I'm interested in this idea of forgiveness and who do you have to ask forgiveness for that's one side and then let's talk about that first and then we'll talk about the abuse yeah i know i i wondered if i'd get in trouble for that for being sort of non you know the the christian ideal is that we need only ask forgiveness and for our for our sins and we will be forgiven but where does that leave those against whom the sins were perpetrated <laughs> So as a, as a fiction writer, I'm interested. I'm interested in in that dynamic. That that uh, you know, it seems a little bit easy to get these deathbed con- these deathbed con- confessions of of guilt that go that go to God. So I was just kind of curious. And you know, that's all fine for him. But what about her? Where does where does she feel that that leaves her? And I I think it makes her doubt. It makes her doubt Christianity because. She can't find any comfort in it. She's told, you know, ministers have told her, you should be happy for your husband. He's found salvation. But it doesn't feel like that to her. She has so much more healing to do. You know, she's had a lifetime of abuse, and now in a minute she's supposed to let it go and be happy for her husband. So she's having a kind of awakening, an awakening to what happened to her and what her life was, and so she's not able to for, she's not able to forgive at least not yet. We all know that you're supposed to forgive that it, it makes you feel better if you can forgive people. But I think for her for her she's got a long way to go before that can happen. And then the other thing I was thinking about with this forgiveness and the abuse that she was able to sort of put back to him, not that I'm saying it's right. Was there some kind of concept in there that you were thinking about or some kind of concept that you think might exist in the world where things are one for one that, you know, he abused her so she was getting back at him? Does that have anything to do with forgiveness? <laughs> do I believe in an eye for an eye? <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't believe in it, but I think that the human psyche needs what it needs in the moment. And for her, for the person she was and what she went through, and now the person she's becoming, I mean, she's being reborn, uh, this woman, and she's probably in her, I think, early 60s, and she's being reborn as this new person who is no longer tied to an abusive man. So I, I, I guess I hope she doesn't spend her life torturing people. <laughs> I, would, I would hope somebody like her would not go on to hurt other people but she probably will learn something about herself by by what 
she has done to her husband. I think for one thing, she probably won't feel like as much of a victim. You know, to, to understand the role of the victimizer um, is, is pretty big. Um, to, to understand the mind of the victimizer is, is, is kind of a big step, maybe, for, for any victim. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Bonnie Jo Campbell, author of this short story collection, Mothers Tell Your Daughters. So I know that it takes you a long time to go from first draft to a final version. So I'm wondering about your process. And I know one thing you're searching for in the stories is heat. So how do you go from that first draft to finding your heat? Yeah, I I am so happy when I finally have a first draft, because even that takes a while. And then I just keep reading it. I just keep reading the story I've written, looking for clues about what more is contained in it that I have not yet discovered. So just rereading, and then I do some analytical things on the side. I draw pictures, and I don't know if drawing a picture is analytical, but it's it's meta. So I'll draw pictures, I'll draw pictures of the characters with arrows pointing, trying to figure out who's Who's in with who? Who's who's got something going? You know, this these two characters have this friction, and these two characters have this other friction. And what are the attractions? Anytime you can find a triangle, that's a beautiful thing. A love triangle is always a nice thing um, for literary writers as well as romance writers. <laughs> um, but I I just keep looking for new ways to see the story. And again, I might put it aside for a while because I don't know what more it needs. And then I might hear something in a news story, or I might just remember something from the past that might fit in that story. And so I just, you know, I used to try to come up with a metaphor that was something about like over overlays. Like, like if you had, in the old days, you had these overhead projectors, and then you had a picture on there, let's say a picture of the human form, and you could like overlay the... the a little plastic sheet that had the muscles on it, or you could put one on that had the bones on it, or you could put put one on that had the, you know, the the lungs, the system of breathing, or whatever. So, I I don't know. Maybe that's just I'm just coming up with another way to think about it. But I just have to keep. I have to trust if if I'm obsessed with the material and the material continues to capture my attention, then I have to have faith that there's something of value in that material that I can that I can package in such a way that it will have value to my readers. Well, one thing I would think comes into revision is a more mathematical brain. And you have a master's in math as well as studying writing. And I'm just wondering if you can talk about using those two sides of your brain, one that might be more towards geared towards provable facts and the other towards truths that you know are true but maybe don't have one answer? Sometime, someday I'm going to write an essay and make the case that writing a short story actually has a lot in common with creating a proof of a theorem. And it's because in both cases, you as the creator are trying to show something. You're, you're trying, you're, you have material and you're trying to show a truth. Now in mathematics, you're trying to show something that's an absolute truth 
according to mathematical principles. And in order to do that, you use a very specific uh, language, the language of math, that is very prescriptive and does ex says exactly what it says. So using mathematical logic, you prove theorems. But when we want to prove, prove something or show something in a story, we use, we use the English language and we use some variant on it that's our own, our own way of using the English language. And we use emotional truths. And we still have to appeal to the real world in that I, I'm going to show you an unfolding of a situation that brings you to some place where there's more truth. But it could mean so many things. A, a story can mean so many things. And it's also not clear when a story is successful. <laughs> you know, a mathematical proof, I know when it succeeds. But there's something in common with these things, these two, these two animals, the mathematical proof and the story. I also do um, think that um, contrary to what a lot of writers say, you'll, you'll run into a lot of writers who say the analytical brain is poisonous. For the writing project, and for me, that's never been true. Um, I need to write. I need to. I need to use part of my brain to write organically, to not be limited by anything, but to just to write and feel characters unfold, and feel situations unfold, and then bring them bring them together in a way. But then I also use for my revision. I use that analytical brain. I use every bit of it. Um, I'm very analytical. I draw pictures when I'm revising. I draw diagrams trying to figure out how the parts fit together. And of course, cause and effect um, is, is, is an analy you know, analyzing cause and effect is an important part of what I do. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Bonnie Jo Campbell, author of the short story collection, Mothers Tell Your Daughters. Can you share a passage from a writer that has influenced you as an author? This is from Carson McCullers, The Ballad of the Sad Cafe, which is the favorite book of many of us. It's just a novella, but it's such a wonderful, it's such a wonderful little story. Carson McCullers, when she was asked about what she was doing while writing this this book, and she reportedly said that she was trying to write a modern-day fairy tale. <laughs> And there's lots of wonderful stuff in, in the book, but I'm just going to read the very ending. It's this strange little piece tacked on to the end after all the action of all the characters we've gotten to know. And it's, it's got a little subheading, and it's called The Twelve Mortal Men. The Forks Falls Highway is three miles from the town, and it is here the chain gang has been working. The road of, is of Macadam and the county decided to patch up the rough places and widen it at a certain dangerous place. The gang is made up of 12 men, all wearing black and white striped prison suits and chained at the ankles. There is a guard with a gun, his eyes drawn to red slits by the glare. The gang works all the day long, arriving huddled in the prison cart soon after daybreak and being driven off again in the gray August twilight. All day there is the sound of picks striking into the clay earth, hard sunlight, the smell of sweat, and every day there is music. One dark voice will start a phrase, half sung and like a question, 
and after a moment, another voice will join in. Soon, the whole gang will be singing. The voices are dark in the golden glare, the music intricately blended, both somber and joyful. The music will swell until at last it seems that the sound does not come from the 12 men on the gang, but from the earth itself or from the wide sky. It is music that causes the heart to broaden and the listener to grow cold with ecstasy and fright. Then slowly the music will sink down until at last there remains one lonely voice. Then a great hoarse breath, the sun, and the sound of the picks in silence. And what kind of gang is this that can make such music? Just 12 mortal men, seven of them black and five of them white boys from the county. Just 12 mortal men who are together. All right. Do you want to say anything else about it? It's just such a mysterious ending there to this book that's about a love triangle. And and Carson McCullers has lots of interesting stuff to say about love. Can you share something that you wrote? It could be something that changed a lot from the first draft or something that you had a lot of troubles with or something that you're just um, really happy with. Yeah, well, things that changed from the first draft, that's pretty much everything I write. <laughs> but let me read uh, Let me read one. Uh, part of the reason I chose this is because it dovetails with what I just read from Carson McCullers in a strange way. But um, this is the title story from from the collection and it was a very it was the very last story that got written um it was i wrote the story to complete the collection and it's about an old woman who is dying and she's been a woman who controlled the her world with her voice and she can't speak anymore so she's thinking very hard aloud she's thinking to her daughter wanting to will her daughter to listen to her, even though she doesn't have any more words. And here she's talking about her, her, die, her, her own death, which is imminent. She's, uh, and she calls her daughter Sis. That's a, the folksy name. The most important thing is that you make my funeral a real bash. Promise you won't spoil the fun. Let my own stories get told one more time before telling your stories, before letting your river of criticism flow around my corpse. Protect me, sis. Hide the photos of me as an old woman. We'll need a dozen strong men there in attendance to roar with laughter. All the men who've loved me are gone, but maybe you can pay for some extra men, big strong ones. The way some folks in the old days paid for women to wail and moan and grieve. While they carry away this body that I have used all up, play the old song I used to sing while I washed dishes and made wine. The one about the golden bird who loves the sun so much that she forgets to eat or drink, forgets to protect her eggs or her nest. I have always loved that song about the bird how she looks up to the sky from her thorny tree and sings her heart out every day, all day, that bird who sings herself to death. So do you want to add anything more about writing this? Well, I'll just say that I was writing a story about a a woman who has, she's caused harm to her daughter. She did not protect her daughter, and her daughter was, was violated. And by all rights, this woman should apologize. 
but she doesn't she doesn't feel she can and so it's a, but it's a, a story in which I did I wanted people to understand this old woman why she couldn't apologize why apologizing would have been a compromise of her whole life and so she's kind of victorious this woman in this final passage because she can envision this good death of hers so and I, I want people to love her even as they even as they hate her. <laughs> so where do you write? Um, I write, this is a good question right now, because I write in my office, surrounded by circus posters, and I sit at a table, I sit in a hard wooden chair because I don't want to be too comfortable, and I, I have a nice view out the window of a bird feeder and woods, and I write at this table, and I've always written at this table, except when I was revising Mothers Tell Your Daughters. I had about six months of intense revision of these stories and writing a few new stories, and I wrote them in the kitchen. I couldn't make myself go into that office. I don't know what it was, but I'm, that's why I'm talking to you right now, and I've got, cans of, I've got canned tomatoes that I've canned myself. I've got, I've got garden vegetables here. I have um, dirty dishes behind me. <laughs> And that's how I wrote, that's how I basically wrote Mothers Tell Your Daughters was in this kitchen. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? To get away from writing, I go to the donkey barn. I have two donkeys, uh, Jack and Don Quixote, and they are my muses, they are my wisdom, they are creatures who fill me with joy um, every time I see them, and so... They're the far, and they're the farthest thing from the writing world. <laughs> and who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I desperately need feedback all the time, but I make myself wait as long as I can. And maybe my first choice is my friend Heidi, who is a brilliant editor who lives in Illinois, and also my friend Carla. Uh, we went to graduate school together, and we stuck together, and... We are indispensable to one another. How have you dealt with rejection? I have embraced it and brought it close to me, and then I've laid down on the ground and wept, and and then I get back up, and then I ride rejection up the next big hill where I may find new rejection. Rejection may be a sign, often is a sign that something needs more work, and that's the tough part, sorting out whether whether to, to take it real seriously or whether to uh, move on and look for the next opportunity. But I, I will say that when I was in graduate school, I before I was published, I sent out a piece of work every day, and I told myself, it's great to get those rejections back because then you can send it out again. What is your favorite word? Oh, my favorite word. I've been thinking about this all day. I love words for their sound. I love I love words like, you know, cessation and words like murmur. And But then I, I thought, no, and then I thought donkey. That's the word I love the best. No, but then I settled on hoyden, H-O-Y-D-E-N, hoyden. It's an old-fashioned word that means a boisterous, rustic girl. 
You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Bonnie Jo Campbell, author of the short story collection, Mothers Tell Your Daughters. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.